Hey guys, it's Savvy Savs, and I have a special guest with me today. His name is Awkward. He's a social justice activist, a rapper, and he is the co-founder of 10 Demands for Justice. Welcome, Awkward. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. So before we get started, can you tell everybody just a little bit about your background? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, I think you did a pretty decent job of setting it up, um, but I have been uh, fighting for justice uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, I was raised by an activist mother, and uh, she was kind of my inspiration to leverage the anger that I had early on at the injustices that I saw in the world in a positive way, um, instead of walking around looking for Nazis to beat up, organizing instead. Um, I found music shortly thereafter, and uh, for most of my uh, adult life, I've been using uh, hip hop music for a similar purpose, um, making songs about the issues that I'm working on. Um, 10 Demands is an abolitionist organization. Uh, we created 10 for Justice uh, in May of last year that uh, sets the road um, for abolition um, of police and prisons uh, with a lot of, um, you know, uh, actions that can be taken immediately um, that are all decarceral, that instead of reforming the system to strengthen it, actually chip away at it to the point where as we build alternative mechanisms that are more humanist and harm reductionist um, through transformative justice, um, we are able to actually live in a society where cops and cages are no longer necessary. Um, I've been an abolitionist um, for about 20 years. I've done everything from uh, spend time in maximum security prisons, uh, meeting with incarcerated people to, um, you know, getting grants to work in alternative to incarceration centers uh, to try to change the way those work, um, to lobbying New York State Congress for the repeal of the Rockefeller drug laws. Uh, so I've been you know, working on this for a really long time. And uh, I think 10 for Justice is a way to kind of structure all of the protests and everything that you've been seeing, um, you know, kind of, the greatest uh, social justice continuous um, protest movement in our nation's history um, in order to achieve the goals that we need, uh, that we, you know, that we want to reach, we need to have concrete demands. And so that was the intent of that, to put all of this years of work and all of this passion um, for change that we're seeing on the streets and actually bring things to city councils, to governors and mayors and um, to Congress as well. Awesome. No, that's great. Um, now, I know that you are, you know, very vocal about police brutality. Um, when we look back on the George Floyd incident, um, there were a certain like segment of people that were very shocked and surprised by what they saw. I know I received phone calls, texts from people saying, I can't believe this happened. I didn't know this was going on. Um, and then there was a certain segment of us like, like me and, and like you, that we weren't really surprised. Um, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think so many people were surprised by what happened with George Floyd? 
Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, considering uh, we had film of Eric Garner being murdered in New York um, and we had all of the, we had um, photos of Mike Brown lying on the street um, murdered in, in Ferguson. And many years before that, there was video on national television of Rodney King being beaten. It's hard to believe that people didn't recognize it um, before this. I'm glad that there was a catalyst because we have seen in cities like Austin and Seattle changes starting to take place as a result of the protests stemming from these from this particular incident. Um, you know, uh, George Floyd wasn't the first person to say I can't breathe, and he wasn't the last either. Um, but it is really interesting. I experienced the same thing with a lot of people texting and calling me and saying things like, oh, you've been saying Black Lives Matter for a long time. Now I get it, you know, like, it, you know, as, as if I started it, which is funny on, in, in and of itself, um, especially given my skin color, but just the fact that no one listened to me at all until this moment. Um, again, I, I can't figure out why, but I will say that um, it does demonstrate the importance of citizen journalists, um, independent media, of everyday people not being afraid to film the police. Um, cops do everything in their power to shut down citizens doing that, arresting people for doing it, which is illegal, um, but it's essential. Um, this is the reason that we've made progress since the civil rights era, it's because we can document it now. So it's thank you know, it's a pot one positive that has come from technology. And it's very different from the reforms to demand that cops have um, cameras on their bodies. Um, body cams, while well-intentioned, um, are actually just strengthening the surveillance state, not to mention that cops turn them off all the time. So like, expecting the cops to be the ones documenting their own brutality doesn't even make sense logically. It's really important that we have human beings who are the potential victims of police be the ones to capture what's happening um, so that we can push to end qualified immunity and, and all of the ways, um, you know, get rid of police unions, all of the, the ways that cops are not only allowed to act with impunity, but the ways that taxpayers then have to cover the costs of the lawsuits um, against the cops who've brutalized or killed us. Right, right. I do remember Rodney King. I believe I was in middle school when that happened. And I remember us talking about it in school, like our teacher having a discussion with the class about it. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me how many people have all of a sudden forgotten. <laughs> yeah. And what do you remember what they said about the response in LA in the communities, like the LA riots, so to speak? What was the, do you remember what the language was around that? Yeah, so the way that it was told to us was that um, people are rioting because of the verdict that came out about Rodney King. Uh, we don't support like this type of behavior. And it, it was interesting to me because even at that age, I already started to see how they shift, they shifted to focusing on the rioters instead of focusing on what actually happened to Rodney King and why people are doing what they're doing. Yep, exactly. And, um, you know, that 
it's it's worth noting that Martin Luther King, who is this you know person that is revered by neoliberals and moderates and even conservatives every year on his birthday, um, said the riot is the voice of the unheard. Um, it is a totally appropriate response to oppression to loot. So um, yeah, that's why I asked. I figured that's what you heard and that's what I heard as well. And that's what we're hearing now. Um, you know, when I uh, share something on social media about a protester um, exercising their First Amendment rights who is um, facing 30 years in prison, for example, the response I get from many people who are on the right typically, but even toward the center, is that maybe you shouldn't be burning down cities. So number one, that isn't really what happened. 93% of the Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. The media manipulates it and, and paints it this way to weaken the support for it. Um, and then there's also the fact that why are we prioritizing property over people? Who cares if we burned a whole city down? If people weren't injured, the proper, like burning a bank is, or burning a police department is symbolic. It's showing that we're not afraid to fight back against the destruction of human lives. Right, no, I, I, I agree. Um, when we talk about 10 demands for justice, 10 demands envisions a society without police and without prisons. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, even defund the police is a so-called slogan that people are fearful of. Um, and I always respond, well, I'm glad because we want to abolish them. Um, you know, defund is step one. Um, and a misconception about abolition, there are a number of them, but two critical ones are, one, that this is something we believe should happen overnight that tomorrow we wake up and every cop is gone and every prison and jail is opened. The other that stems from that ostensibly is that abolition is about the absence of accountability and anarchy. None of these things are true. The reality is that we in our society that is racist and classist and has totally criminalized certain communities um, and has implemented all of these systemic um, mechanisms to keep certain people um, from, from living their full potential, um, lack of education, lack of jobs training, lack of jobs opportunities, um, lack of quality health care, um, lack of substance abuse and uh, mental health treatment. Um, you know, <clears throat> all of these things are preventing true equality in this country. So mm -hmm. if we were to just get rid of cops today and get rid of prisons today, we'd still be in this messed up place with now no way of holding certain people accountable for what they do. So abolition is the opposite of absence or accountability. It's about presence. It's about the presence of um, humanistic structures of a different form of justice where people are really held accountable as human beings. So instead of locking them in cages and being done with them and only using them uh, for to work eight cents an hour for the profit of corporations, they are actually involved in mediation, rehabilitation, um, transformative justice, where both the 
the victim as well as the perpetrator are transformed by this process. They, they perform community service. They are held more accountable to the people that they've harmed. Um, it is also about the presence of all of these things that I mentioned don't exist today, like substance abuse treatment, like mental health treatment. Um, instead of patrolling, you know, instead of white cops patrolling black neighborhoods that they don't live in, um, community members um, who are highly trained doing wellness checks, you know, not bringing guns to mental health um, crises. There are so many things that, um, that we would have to start building today to, to build this alternative society. So as we're defunding police down to zero, we are using the money that the, the billions and trillions of dollars that goes into police budgets, we're using to build these other things to improve our society and particularly the most impacted communities. So when we get to the point where we're, where we're strong enough to take care of our own communities, then it won't be a problem getting rid of police and prisons because we won't need them at all. No, that's, that's really deep. Um, I know that I have family members in Baltimore. Um, and even though I didn't really grow up there, went to visit them often. And one of the things that I noticed that was alarming to me is that police cars would just constantly go around the block. Nothing would be going on, but they would just constantly go back and forth, like around the block, just looking for something. Mm -hmm. And there were times when I saw where police officers would just approach people who were just standing there, minding their own business, um, again, looking for something. We've seen police officers and Baltimore police officers plant drugs in people's cars. And it's, it's just like, again, there's no accountability, though. Those police officers, from what I've seen, like they may get put on paid administrative leave and then they just go to another station. So it just it it basically just encourages that behavior because they know that nothing for the most part is going to happen to them. Yep, exactly. Um, and Brianna Taylor is a very um, well known case too, um, where she was her house was stormed by cops in the middle of the night while she was sleeping and she was murdered and none of none of the officers who murdered her were even tried or i mean were even um charged like sentenced or i guess what would the word be um were even i mean i, I think i mean in essence what happened was they were held responsible for a bullet going into a neighbor's house not for killing her um and and you're absolutely right um cops are not held accountable. And that's one of the other parts of 10 Demands um, where we have um, a national database of, of all of this. We, we have um, databases and um, community oversight boards at every level, at the local level, at the state level, where um, you know the public is made aware of all of this stuff and judges and prosecutors do not have the same discretion or immunity to just um, you know, try certain people based on certain things, um, or, you know, sentence certain people based on certain things. Um, and, you know, I have two personal stories that, you know, add to what you're saying. When I lived in Brooklyn for a number of years, I was the only white guy on the street. Um, I, I could be, there were times when I was sitting there on my stoop smoking a blunt, which is not legal at this time. Um, cops would on a regular basis, um, come screeching to the, to the, you know, um, 
the corner, the between the two corners that I lived in unmarked vans, jump out and clear the entire street of everyone there, arrest them all and leave me sitting there because of my skin color. Um, there was a time when I was walking through what I guess was considered a dangerous neighborhood in Wilmington, Delaware, not far from Baltimore, um, where the cops came screeching up with their sirens. You know, I was just walking, pulled up next to me, and I was thinking, you know, what were the, what, what did I do? They said they were trying to save me from all of the dangerous people who might hurt me in this neighborhood and tried to get me to go into the car so they could drive me to safety. Um, I walked by a number of um, porches with black people sitting on them and no one had anything to say to me that made me fear for my life. The only thing that made me fear for my life was the cops pulling up on me. And, um, you know, as we saw in Texas with a guy spending just recently spending a night in jail for walking on the street while black. Um, if you're a black person and, you know, like I fear the police, right? So I can't even, you know, I, I haven't lived it. So I can't even fathom the fear I would have because I already feel it if I were a black person who knew that cops were killing people who looked like me every day. Um, the, the requirement of acting, of behaving, acting calm and, you know, and knowing that like one, like you could do nothing and still die that moment on like a broken taillight is, is unbelievable to me. And, um, you know, we, you know, and, I honestly think that, um, you know, that there's, you know, there's a lot to be said for, um, just as human beings, um, you, you know, it's impressive to me that, that it, I mean, I mean, cops kill three people a day in this country um, and are responsible for one third of all stranger murders. Um, black people are 600% more likely to be the victim. The numbers are even worse for indigenous people. Um, I, I, I don't know how uh, people of color can handle it because they, they're being targeted. So they're pulled over more in the first place. Um, so the frequency in, with which you're dealing with it is also greater. Um, you know, the guy who murder, uh, who filmed the murder of Eric Garner, um, Ramsey Orta said that for, he was, he and his friends were stopped and frisked so often in New York that he, the reason he was able to videotape this, which is the only reason we know about it, um, is because he literally started leaving the house with his phone in his hand with the camera ready to record because they were so fearful every moment that they weren't in their own homes. Yes, yes, indeed. And we all know who was partially responsible for that. That was Bloomberg. You know, the whole stop and frisk thing, that was that was him. Um, and so indeed, it was interesting but, you to know, me. It, yeah. I'm sorry, but it, it also says a lot about, um, you know, Democrats and Republicans um, and the the uh, you know, um, Maya Shenoir um, and uh, Vicky Law said in uh, Prison by Any Other Name that um, reform is the refrain of the Koch brothers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they ha I mean, they happen to be Republican, but um, de Blasio hasn't been any better. Right. That's the thing we have to understand. He has fought, you know, tooth and nail against closing Rikers, and he continued stop and frisk, um, you know, and 
and Bloomberg, I don't even know if he was a Republican or a Democrat at the time that he was mayor because he's, that's the point. They can change sides. None of them are actually progressive. None of these people um, in power actually want to dismantle the system, improve the conditions of the people who end up in, in um, situations where they're forced to commit crimes out of desperation. Mm -hmm. um, reforms strengthen the system because they're, they're just meant to make like a little gentler version of genocide. They don't, they don't actually change the system itself. Right, correct. And and that's also why, you know, in reference to uh, de Blasio, I remember when he was running for president, one of the first comments he made on the debate stage was, I have a black son. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> like, right. that's, that's why I tell people when they make comments like, I'm not racist because I have a black friend. I'm not racist. I have a black kid. That that doesn't mean that you don't have prejudice against people who are of the same, uh, you know, complexion as your son or your friend. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that people really need to to realize. Yeah. And and, you know, more than half of this country, if not more, is racist. Um, we saw that because you have to be if you voted for Trump. Um, and then amazingly enough, the alternative was a former segregationist who wrote the crime bill that devastated the black and brown communities. Um, so, you know, I, <clears throat> I think prejudices, um, personal prejudices and um, microaggressions are what make our day-to-day -day lives or make certain people's day-to-day -day lives difficult. Um, but, you know, racism, systemic racism, is what destroys entire communities over generations. And, um, you know, if a leader is, is racist and does or doesn't know it, you know, it's not necessarily gonna impact the laws that they're willing to pass or reject. Um, racism and, and classism are so built into the, the capitalist way that our country is run and the white supremacist you know, uh, white supremacism that is just ingrained in, in every system in our society. Um, these are the things that we need to, you know, to overcome. And, and I think, you know, at the same time, um, you know, we do there, the importance of um, not just diversity, but diversity and inclusion, the importance of education, um, you know, that, over time can improve our society as well. Um, you know, but, but like, and, and I do think as an abolitionist that transformation is possible for anyone. So, you know, there are a lot of, I would not, not enough, but there are Nazis who converted to not only not being Nazis anymore, but working with current Nazis to make them not Nazis anymore. So, Honestly, most of the reason that there's so much racism in our society, so much anti-Semitism, um, and so much hatred for immigrants um, is brainwashing. It's disinformation and people, and it goes from generation to generation to generation. They're taught by their parents and their community leaders and everyone around them that the reason that they're poor and that their lives aren't the way they want it to be is the blacks and the Jews and the immigrants. Um, and the only way to, you know, to change that is to teach them the truth that we all have a common enemy and it's the corporations and the politicians who 
are working together to maintain the status quo that benefits 1% of society. It's traditionally white men, mm. white Christian men for that matter. That's so true. Um, now I know that one of the demands that um, is a part of 10 demands is to apologize and provide reparations. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to Marianne Williamson about this as well, but I wanna hear from you. Like, why do you feel that this is needed? Um, well, well, my feeling on it being needed is less important than the people that we conferred with before finalizing the demands. Um, black and indigenous people believe that they deserve reparations and their voice is more important. Um, I support that. Um, I see that, you know, like when I, when I was um, fighting to repeal the Rockefeller drug laws that disproportionately impacted black and brown people, um, one of the state senators said, well, they just need to pull them up from, the, from their bootstraps, you know, and that's a lot easier said than done when you don't have one thing after another just piling up as, as blockades to your progress. Um, and being um, a descendant of someone who was kidnapped and brought here as a slave, um, and then in many ways, all of their elders that came after that also experienced slavery in one way or another from you know, um, black laws and chain gangs to Jim Crow to mass incarceration, um, you know, or you have the indigenous people who um, are very few in, in numbers because white Christian Europeans took their land, um, put them in small reservations, those that they didn't murder and rape and, and everything else. So the only way to even start to reach a true, just, equal society is to um, to pay back what has been taken, to put us on an equal playing field, minus all of the syst systemic, um, you know, blockades that still remain. So they're not just facing them today; they're facing generations of that. And meanwhile, generations of white people have just accrued more and more wealth. You know, so. The, the wealth differential is, is just staggering. And that stems from how our country was built. Um, the apology also um, separate from monetary reparations um, and land back and recognizing treaties for indigenous people um, is, is just is more of a symbolic gesture than anything else, I believe. Um, but I think it's important, we, you know, the people who have benefited <clears throat> from slavery, um, from genocide, from mass incarceration and, and everything else um, need to step up and say, we are sorry for what we have done. We acknowledge our privilege. We acknowledge, we acknowledge the way we have benefited from this. Um, but to me, I think that's, that's less substantive. But I think, you know, since we were told, um, you know, and needless to say, there are black and indigenous um, and immigrant members of 10 Demands, but, you know, as, as the white, the literally the only white guy, um, you know, I, you know, I, I defer to those who um, experience this directly. Yeah, no, um, that's, that's, that's really great. I, I, I love that. <laughs> I love hearing that. Um, I think that sometimes people or some people don't understand that, like, Poverty is a cycle. And I, I try to tell people about this all the time. It's like, 
for the people who say, pull yourself up by, by the bootstraps or whatever, uh, that's easier said than done, right? So if you're coming from poverty, okay, one option is you can excel in school and then maybe you'll get into a good college and you can start off having a good career. But then that goes back to the school system because if you're living in a bad neighborhood, nine times out of 10, the school is underfunded, right? Exactly. So the elite universities are not going to look at people coming from your school. So let's say you get into a state school. Great. You got in, who's paying for it, right? So then you end up taking out student loans, which that's a whole nother, that could be a whole nother video about student loan debt in this country. Yeah. So then you take out all this money in student loans, you graduate, you get the degree, you get a job. And then in reference to um, African-Americans, a lot of times we're not paid or offered the same pay as, as our white counterparts. So you're already underpaid, you got that job, you have that degree, but now you have to pay back all those student loans. So now you got student loan debt. So unlike other generations, like it's not like the kids today coming from those like environments, they have it twice as hard. And I think people just don't understand that if they haven't lived it. Yep. That's a hundred percent true. And, you know, and then you add to it the fact, just like you mentioned it with education, all of the things that, you know, all of the, the ways that um, it just is so much harder to excel <clears throat> in one of these communities. Um, it is, it has nothing to do with, with science. It's entirely social constructs. It's because, um, you know, the mom and dad might be working multiple jobs. Um, there's not enough money maybe to, to have breakfast. Um, you go to school and you have to walk through a metal, metal, metal detector. You have to, <clears throat> you have to walk past a cop who has body slammed your friend a week before and got away with it. Um, you know that if there's any kind of disagreement, um, you know, the, the ways that school punishment, um, you know, and, and no tolerance policies exist, they target black and brown people. Um, you know, so you, you go to a military, you, you leave a militarized community, like an over-policed community to go to a militarized over-policed school. Um, you're expected to be able to maintain focus, um, you know, when you, and, and, then, and then excel despite all of these things only to, as you said, go to college, come out and face a hiring um, committee that is also racist. And, and if they hire you at all, is gonna pay you less. Um, you know, and, and then just, just imagine when you are, if, as a member of a criminalized community, you are one of, you know, first of all, one in three black boys born today will end up incarcerated. So if you're one of those three and you enter the system, you are forever a felon. You know, you come out and <clears throat> you now owe money to lawyers, you owe money to child support or whatever, like varieties of things that um, have been stacked up against you while you're incarcerated. Um, you don't have a house, you don't have a car, um, you're relying on re-entry um, organizations. Um, and many of these organizations are led by um, you know, white, they're white, not white led nonprofits that, you know, don't understand you and don't center your needs um, in, in, you know, actually getting you back on your feet. Um, not to mention, it's incredibly hard to get a job if you've ever been um, convicted of a crime. Um, so yeah, so absolutely poverty is a cycle. 
um, and poverty is criminalized in this country, whether you're white or black or any other color, seven out of 10 people in jails in this country have not been convicted of a crime. They are there because they can't afford to get out. It's crazy. Yeah. The, the cash bail system, right? Yeah, that's another thing too, is that wealthy people, if they get arrested, they have the money to pay the cash bail to get out. If you're poor and you get arrested, you're arrested. Like you're, <laughs> it just, it's not, that's another thing I think that, that definitely needs to go. Absolutely. And not to mention that these, the rich people, um, you know, I was speaking to Glenn Martin um, from Close Rikers and Just Leadership the other day for my interview show. And, you know, he, he pointed out that even if you are rich as a black man, you know, you're in a nice car or a black woman, you are, um, you're still going to get pulled over more. And then you're asked, are you a drug dealer? Because you have this money. Um, but the, you know, the poor, um, you know, obviously are, and certainly poor people of color are pulled over and arrested more often. Um, white people are um, just as likely to do drugs and are more likely to sell drugs. You would not, when looking at the number of people arrested, pulled over, incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses, you certainly wouldn't believe that statistic based on who is rotting in prison for these things. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the truth. So you know, the amount like Angela Davis talks about, like the, the, you know, population of people who have committed crimes is very different from the population of people who are deemed criminal. Um, every one of us has probably broken one law or another. What differentiates us is who has been criminalized for either whether they've broken a law or not and been treated as a criminal um, and face the repercussions of that versus those who um, can commit a crime and get away with it. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, I have one more question for you for people who will see this and, you know, they want to get involved. What, what do you recommend to people who are thinking about getting involved in like social justice or activism? Um, so a few things I would say, you know, if you have money, um, do your research and support local, organizations, um, mutual aid um, groups and things like that. Um, if you want to, you know, um, you know, things that are kind of, you know, you might not think of as being this revolutionary act, but are so helpful um, is getting involved with groups that are sending books to prisons, um, writing letters to incarcerated people. These are the kinds of things that um, can help them make it through um, and, and grow as individuals because they're not being rehabilitated uh, in prison. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, pushing for abolition, ending cash bail, ending solitary confinement, um, holding police accountable, um, defunding the police departments and, and reallocating those resources. Um, one thing that you can do that's incredibly easy is go to 10forjustice.com, T-E-N-F-O-R justice.com and go to the take action page. You can send a letter to your mayor, your governor, your state Congress or national Congress with a simple text. It sends a letter directly to them and, the, and 
it, it basically sends them the 10 demands and the just and the explanation for why it's needed critically now. And the more times that these politicians receive these letters that essentially tell them you can either be a leader in this inevitable um, movement that is going to take place, whether you like it or not, or you can be someone who rejects it um, and never get voted again. Like this is our opportunity to hold our elected officials accountable. We elected them. They need to do what their communities, their constituencies are requiring. Um, and it's as easy as sending a text. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, I would say, um, you know, join your local DSA group um, because they have a lot of sub groups um, that focus on particular causes. Um, you know, they have, um, like in Atlanta, there's um, an Atlanta police defunding group through DSA. In New York City, there's an anti-fascist group through, through DSA. Um, you know, that's another thing. You can always reach out to me too. Um, I'm awkward rap on Twitter, A-W-K-W-O-R-D-R-A-P. Um, if you have questions or, you know, other things that you can do, I'm always, you know, I'm constantly, um, you know, shining a light on cases of police brutality. I think the only way to, um, you know, to increase awareness and demand for this change is to continually demonstrate the, um, you know, the inhumanity of policing in this, in this country. And I'm also always working to free incarcerated people. Um, you know, on the way to abolishing um, jails and prisons, there are a lot of people that we can free right now, people who don't deserve to be in there, even if you believe in prisons. Um, there are people who haven't even committed crimes and are there. Um, there's a guy named Temujin Kensu that I've worked with for a really long time, who's been in uh, prison for uh, nearly 40 years. Uh, he didn't kill anyone. He's there for murder. Um, there's a lot of cases like this, and there are ways that you can help, um, you know, get support for these individuals, whether it's, um, you know, writing letters to parole boards, um, sending money to their commissary, whatever makes you feel comfortable. There's a million ways that you can support the movement without necessarily putting your life in danger um, on the streets, you know. Uh, protest is not for everyone. I think it's critically important, but there are roles for everybody. You know, in Seattle, the people who were sitting in the city council meetings and pushing those demands that led to um, the beginning of defunding were not the same people who were on the streets necessarily. So um, there's a role for everybody who knows what's right and wrong. Awesome. Awkward. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'll be sure to put all of the links in the description below. Thanks cool. so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.